This is it's my first interview. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't have any advertisement breaks? No, <laughs> we're not. Hey y'all, this is Basil. And this is Faith. Today we had the distinct pleasure to interview a fellow Texan, Dr. Serhi Kudelia. Serhi Kudelia is an associate professor of political science at Baylor University, where he teaches courses on ethno-political conflicts, terrorism, political regimes, and post-Soviet politics. In this episode, we discussed the war in Ukraine and the geopolitical ramifications of current developments in the region and globally. Kudelia as my professor. I'm really excited to be here with him. To begin, I just wanted to ask, so as a professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, I know there's not a very large Ukrainian faculty or people studying Ukraine. So I was wondering, how have you seen your role shift or your research develop as Ukraine becomes of greater importance to the world? Yes, well, thank you, Faith, and it's, it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you and with Basil as well. So I would say um, when I took the job at Baylor, that was 2012, I already felt that Ukraine is kind of important. And in fact, uh, my dissertation was devoted to Ukraine. Uh, I wrote a dissertation on the Orange Revolution and on the constitutional changes there. And a lot of my research was based on Ukraine. So when I did my job talk, it was also based on the case of studying the insurgency in, um, after World War II. But of course, you're right. Uh, immediately after I got my job, we had Euromaidan revolution. Then we had uh, the armed conflict in Donbass, the annexation of Crimea. And certainly Ukraine moved up uh, in terms of priorities as far as international news is concerned. And that, um, I would say, put additional pressure on me to make sure that my presence at Baylor uh, would also add to the discussion of Ukraine among the faculty and with students. So I did make sure that we had speakers who would address topics related to Ukraine, related to the revolution, related to the war. And of course, after uh, the full-scale invasion, I organized a series of lectures, uh, in fact, four different lectures dealing with different causes of the war. And I discussed at length, these were public lectures, the community from Waco and from the university could come and listen. And we had these, uh, uh, the whole semester of lectures, basically every month, we would have one lecture, we would have discussion on these topics. So one way to answer your question is, yes, I felt that I had an additional responsibility to elevate uh, Ukraine in the internal discussion within the university and with students. And of course, after these series of lectures, I introduced my own class. So now at Baylor, we have a class on Ukrainian politics that is on the books. And uh, even if I leave the university at some point, I hope that my successor will continue teaching this class. So in an earlier article that you wrote prior to the invasion of Ukraine, you said, quote, an attack on Ukraine would also make Russia more vulnerable by severely straining its military and economic resources. Given Russia's uh, struggle on the battlefield in Ukraine and its current performance, 
How do you see Russia adapting economically and military to sustain its war effort? And to what extent is the war sustainable for them? This is an excellent question. And of course, initially, I have to say that my perception of how Russia will be able to uh, economically sustain the war, uh, we're a bit optimistic, optimistic from the standpoint of Ukraine, right? And I thought that the sanctions would have a much quicker and harder effect on the Russian economy and particularly on the Russian public. Even though we think of Russia as an authoritarian state that is hard, fully controlled and the society is penetrated by the security agencies, Russian citizens have an agency. They had an agency even during the Soviet times, even during the uh, sort of the Stalinist period, they had an agency. And so in that sense, it is not unreasonable to think about the response that the Russian society may have to the war and see it as a potential constraint on Putin's decision-making. But we've seen that, in fact, the Russian economy adjusted. They reoriented most of their trade now uh, with China. And China and India, uh, I think, stepped in and now uh, provide substantial source of revenues uh, as far as export, especially of uh, oil, is concerned. And I think in the future, it seems like this uh, relationship and this dependency will grow and will allow Russia to sustain its economy for quite a while. Now, we've seen that the big development over the last couple of months was the financial crisis in Russia and the drop in the exchange rate of the Russian ruble. It is still not clear whether Russia would be able to successfully prevent further sliding of the, of the, Russian, uh, of the Russian currency. But it still seems like even with financial difficulties, they managed to contain the inflation. And that is, I think, the key factor that will influence the Russian public opinion, not the exchange rate necessarily, but the uh, rate of inflation and the extent to which Russians feel somehow affected directly in the negative way by these sanctions. And at this point, it doesn't seem like the average Russian was severely affected by, by, this, uh, by the sanctions. We're also seeing the adjustment in terms of how Russia is waging its military campaign. And what we've seen is that initially, there was a lot of disorientation, uh, demoralization within the Russian troops. But there has been a, a turnaround, especially after the new mobilization wave uh, of uh, in the last fall. And we're seeing that uh, the Russians have actually increased their production of the drones. They were really behind at the beginning of the war. Now they're actually, according to various military estimates, uh, analysts, they're actually quite successful in the production of the drones and even better than uh, some of the Western countries. So... It seems like the war allowed Russia to improve its military capacity. Uh, it's uh, kind of ironic that this is, this is what, what happened, or rather counterintuitive that this is exactly what happened. But it seems like they managed to create a new foundation for, their, for, for the Russian military, both ideologically, because there is a strong, a strong ideological component to what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but also in terms of resources, because a lot of the Russian economy is now working for the military, for the sake of the military. And of course, the military expenditures went up considerably as well. Excellent. So a really good follow-up question. You started touching on ideology. You said in one of your articles as well that Russians now, particularly in the younger age group, report positive attitudes towards Ukraine. This is pre-invasion, mind you. And only a small minority, about 19%, uh, would like to see Russia and Ukraine merge into a single state. Hence, the military invasion of a neighboring state on unclear grounds with vaguely defined objectives and tremendous costs for regular Russian citizens is likely to be a widely unpopular event in Russian society. 
what do you think of that assessment and now that we're post and how do we see the ideology and these uh, opinions change in Russia, but also in Ukraine? How do they look? Well, to an extent that we can track changes in the Russian public opinion, I think some of the polls I've seen, um, especially in the first year of the war, clearly demonstrated the generational gap where the younger generation was strongly against the war, was questioning the pretext under which the war is fought. And the older generation, so individuals over 50 years old, were overwhelmingly supportive of the war effort by Putin. Right? So there was this generational gap that to me indicated that there was a potential for internal discontent. Right? Because if younger people are against the war, potentially they may have an influence on, on their parents or grandparents. But we've also seen that there has been a lot of outflow, uh, my, migration out of Russia. And most of the migrants who were leaving Russia were actually younger people. And so to that, to that extent, we, there are different estimates how many Russians uh, left, one, two, three million people. But these are usually younger, better educated uh, Russians who are looking for opportunities all around the world and are not willing to stay and protest or oppose Putin directly to risk, uh, risking their lives. Right? So in that sense, I think to some extent, the expectation that it will be widely unpopular proved to be incorrect, right? But the expectation that the younger people will be against the war, I think, was corroborated by the evidence. What is happening now, I think, is harder to judge because what it seems like is once the war became a normal part of life in Russia, not a shock, not something that people were suddenly couldn't make uh, up their minds about, but something that is an everyday occurrence. People got more and more accommodated or accustomed to the war. And once you're accustomed to the war, you're becoming more indifferent. Even if you're initially opposed to it on moral or other grounds, you are gradually becoming more indifferent about the war in general. And so this means that younger people might have, might have become more apathetic, not necessarily highly supportive or nationalistic, but just generally apathetic about the war. Especially given the fact that over the last several months, unfortunately, there has been uh, an indication that Ukrainian counteroffensive was not successful in pushing the Russians out of the ter occupied territories. And that certainly indicates to many Russians that Russia may be up, uh, at some point uh, having an upper hand in this war. So going off of that, a lot of the rhetoric in Ukraine and in the West is that if he had the chance, Putin would not stop at invading Ukraine, but would continue on and potentially attack Poland as well. Do you feel that there is any validity to that statement? Do you think that's a possibility at all? Or do you think that Russia has learned it cannot really project its military power that much further than it already has? Yeah, so uh, exactly. And it's, it's not clear how far it is capable of projecting its power because we've seen that basically since the capture of Bakhmut, which uh, happened at a very significant cost of lives for the Russians, they were not very successful in moving even into smaller towns like Avdiivka, right? The small town of Avdiivka, 20,000 people. Of course, now it's completely deserted. They are fighting for months just to get in. Right? So imagining that they would somehow be able to attack Poland, I think, is completely incomprehensible right now. And there is also a second factor, and that is Poland is a member of NATO. And from what we've seen so far, Putin can be deterred with security, multilateral security guarantees like NATO. Putin, I think, respects 
this ability of the West in general to honor their commitments to their members of the alliance and to fight back. And so in that sense, this is another reason why I do not think he would venture in Poland or in the Baltic states. Unless, of course, there will be a change in the U.S. foreign policy, which we can talk about separately, where NATO commitments of the United States will be put under question. In that case, any scenario is possible, right? But at this point in time, this is just a hypothetical. On the subject of Putin, what are the immediate and long-term ramifications for the survival of the Putin regime? And is there anything to suggest that there are perhaps other positions of power, be it military, FSB, or even political institutions that could pose a challenge to his authority and, and invoke some sort of change in Russia? Well, from the standpoint of the security agencies, I think Putin is clearly in control of those. Uh, I, I do not think if there is a challenge that it would come necessarily from FSB or from the military itself. A lot of the current funding and financing goes into the military and into the security services. And of course, this is how loyalties are bought. Loyalties are depend on access to funds. All the government funds prioritize them. Second of all, the extent to which Putin can be challenged also depends on the trajectory of the war. And we've seen that there were moments when the war has not been going well for Putin. That is where we've seen potential cracks not cracks, but potential signs of cracks. So, for example, the Prigozhin uh, mutiny in the summer happened out of the discontent within some military circles about the way the war was fought, was waged, and Prigozhin was expressing this discontent, expressing these disagreements, right? Ultimately, he paid the price with his life, uh, and that was also a signal from the standpoint of Putin to those who may potentially challenge him in the future that no matter how much you try, the only thing that will happen is you will die and I will survive, right? So that was uh, a very important signal from, from Putin's standpoint. But at this point, if we are seeing that the war will continue as it is in the form of a stalemate uh, where Russia does not make significant gains, but it does not really yield a lot of ground too, I think for the foreseeable future, it's hard to identify potential sources of challenges to Putin uh, and to his, uh, to his rule. It seems like the society in general, we just discussed that, uh, is willing to accept and go by what's happening and accept these policies. And political elites in general also form the consensus around this. And so there is uh, a general belief that uh, the, this was the right policy choice and that Russia is somehow improving its position vis-a-vis -vis the United States and becoming a stronger power out of this war. Because from the standpoint of the Kremlin, the war is waged not just against Ukraine, but it's waged against the West in general. And they try to emphasize how much the reason for the continued war is because of the Western supplies of arm armaments to Ukraine and financing. And so for them, the fact that they're still fighting this war successfully in Ukraine means that they're capable of fighting the West directly. If Ukraine reaches a point where it can no longer sustain the war uh, with manpower, weaponry, and munitions, what other viable options does Ukraine have? I mean, I could see if Russia continues to take advantage of that, Ukraine resorts to a full-time insurgency, uh, maybe on a much greater scale with more support than what we witnessed uh, during the 40s and the 50s, especially in Western Ukraine. Do you see any possibility that that would take hold in Ukraine afterwards? Well, if 
If your scenario is accurate and uh, suddenly we see a, a dramatic decrease in the amount of arms that Ukraine receives, it certainly will weaken Ukraine's capacity to resist Russian aggression. And it certainly, even though I do not think there will be a breakdown of the front and there will be like a dramatic, dramatic capture of large amounts of territory, but it's likely that uh, most of Donbass will be captured by uh, Russians. And it's likely they will move up south. And especially the cities that, that are particularly vulnerable to the, to the Russian, further Russian aggression is Odessa and Mykolaiv in the south. They've been look, looking at Odessa for a very long time. And I think if your scenario is, will happen, which we all hope is not going to happen, but if, if it case, in case it happens, Odessa is the place where they will probably target after Donbass their efforts to use this vacuum uh, of power or this weakening of, of Ukrainian defenses to um, have some gains. Right? Whether or not it will lead to the insurgency is harder to say, uh, because insurgencies do not happen just because people do not like the occupying power. Insurgencies also require additional resources. Uh, insurgencies require favorable terrain. So that means insurgency is more likely to happen in the mountains. Insurgency is more likely to happen in the forested areas. In Western Ukraine, for example, insurgencies lasted longer, the uh, anti-Soviet insurgency lasted longer in the Carpathian Mountains, right, where the insurgents could hide, etc. Southern uh, part of Ukraine is not very favorable as far as uh, insurgency is concerned because it's flat. There are very few places where you can hide. And so it's, it's harder to imagine that this insurgency there would be successful. I can uh, certainly accept the idea that there will be resistance, there will be sabotage, there will be subversive actions, but whether or not you will have an actual armed uh, insurgent units operating, that I think would be more difficult to imagine. But if uh, we imagine that Russians capture more than just the south and try to move up uh, north uh, and go into western Ukraine or into the central Ukraine, there I think the likelihood of insurgency is going up. Other countries that are U.S. allies that are under a lot of threat from neighboring countries like Taiwan or South Korea or Israel have certain things like U.S. troops there stationed there or nuclear weapons as a sort of a security guarantee against their adversaries. So I was wondering what kind of what would it take for Ukraine to have that kind of security or is that possible? Well, I agree that ideally uh, it would be uh, good to have Western troops stationed in Ukraine as an additional deterrent uh, against Russian aggression. That might prevent Putin from, or whoever will succeed Putin, from attempting to attack Ukraine again, because this would pose a direct threat to the troops from the NATO member countries. But we also understand that there are significant constraints on the Western leaders to deploy their troops. And these constraints are domestic public opinion. And so for this reason, I think it's very hard to imagine that the Western troops would be uh, deployed in Ukraine in any near, near future. And in general, I, I do not think this is a necessary precondition for any ceasefire to hold. As I said, a lot will depend on the ability of the Ukrainians to build up the defenses, both in terms of the preparation of troops, but also physical defenses. So President Zelensky has been talking a lot lately about the need to erect uh, the special material defenses along the border with uh, the Russian Federation, mine these entire territories, etc. It's clear that the Ukrainian leadership is already thinking about this, uh, the need for uh, defenses 
and possibly that's done in preparation for further ceasefire talks. Yeah, so I'd like to transition a little bit towards talking about the effects of the the war in Ukrainian politics, specifically the government apparatus. We've seen President Zelensky dismiss a number of officials related to the defense industry and other key administrative positions. Do you see this transition of the Ukrainian government being a net positive in terms of battling corruption, improving government transparency and efficiency? How do you assess the current efforts? Well, in general, I think to many Ukrainians, and to to me personally as well, it has been disappointing, primarily because initially I believed that there will be a harder crackdown on corruption and that there would have been some, there would be some kind of a consensus within political elites that uh, engaging in old corrupt practices would be unacceptable in the time of war. But we also seen a lot of uh, reporting from Ukraine, especially in the last several months, that indicate that corruption happens on different levels and it continues, both within the defense ministry, and this was one of the reasons why we've seen these changes uh, in the top of the defense apparatus, but also in other areas, including the government's um, economic uh, uh, and finance and parliament as well. So yes, maybe some of these replacements uh, are positive signs, But I think what really would make a difference is the introduction of specific agencies or institutions that would be able to uh, contain instances of corruption in the future. Because you replace one person with another and that other person may at some point be corrupted as well. And this is not a solution, this continuous replacement of individuals. So we already have anti-corruption bureau. But from what we've seen, it has not been very effective in dealing with the instances of corruption at the top level. Uh, And there are very few examples of uh, high-level officials who ended up being uh, investigated and persecuted for, for their corruption. So I think if we move in the direction of systemic fight against corruption, especially in areas that are related to security sector, that, that would be a sign that the Ukrainian leadership is taking it seriously. I also know that the idea of corruption in Ukraine is a talking point for people in the U.S. who do not want to continue supporting Ukraine, whether or not that's true. And I'm just curious, like, how can the United States keep supporting Ukraine? And do you think there is any concern that the U.S. support of Ukraine would discontinue or... Yeah, so it's a, it's a very important question. And uh, from this standpoint, I think first, it, it's sort of sometimes difficult to talk uh, frankly and honestly about what's happening in Ukraine, because it can be used and misused by people like Tucker Carlson, who would then uh, exaggerate it, amplify it and say, okay, you see, this is a terrible country, we have to forget that it exists, right? So of course, most of what I hear on, from people like Tucker Carlson and other media personalities on the far right of the political spectrum in the United States is selecting specific facts and saying this is a much larger pattern, an example of a much larger pattern, right? Where basically the entire American economic assistance is being stolen, right? And all the money that the American taxpayers are giving to Ukraine, everything is stolen for, for these oligarchs in, in Ukraine. That is a huge exaggeration. And first, it's important to note that most of the uh, assistance that comes from the United States is military assistance. Economic assistance comes, most of that comes from the European Union. Most of the American assistance comes in the forms of uh, hardware, 
uh, which you don't, it's hard to steal a thing, <laughs> or, or a missile, right? <laughs> so, so, so in that sense, uh, what they're saying is basically they're misrepresenting the, the facts uh, about the Ameri- the, 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 what the American system is all about. But it, it's also wrong to say, as they suggest, that all the assistance that Ukraine gets is somehow disappears because otherwise people would not be able to receive their pensions. Uh, the teachers and doctors in public institutions would not receive their salaries and nothing would be done because a lot of the, unfortunately, Ukrainian budget is covered by the external funding that we receive from the European Union and from uh, other countries in the West. So these types of expenditures that go to support public needs, they're all coming from the West. Okay, Military uh, expenditures. So most of the uh, expenditures that are channeling in going, going into the defense uh, industry, they are coming from the internal connect collections, revenue collections, Okay, from the internal domestic taxes. And that's also important to remember that when they say that we are providing them a lot of money into the defense industry and defense industry is corrupt, that means our money is lost. In fact, it's the money, Ukrainian money, that is being lost. It's the taxes that were collected in Ukraine, right? Not the American funds or Western funds. That's one aspect of the story. But then there is also a second aspect of the story, and that is an attempt to present Ukraine not just as a corrupt, but as a country that is um, not worthy of support because it's not that strategically important, and it only puts the United States in direct conflict with Russia, right? And so any type of support for Ukraine is presented as an attempt as an attempt to bring America closer to war with Russia. It's something that obviously for many decades American presidents tried to avoid. And they have an obligation to avoid because ultimately they are responsible to American to American citizens. But it's also important to remember that these types of fears have also been exaggerated because what we've seen so far from the record, Putin is very clear. Even though a lot of uh, military equipment comes to Ukraine from the United States. Putin understands that any attempt to present this as casus belli against the United States would ultimately backfire against him. Russia, as we just discussed, cannot sustain the war with NATO, with uh, Poland, let alone with the United States. It's not in Russia's interest to start a fight or start a war with the United States. So the support from the United States to Ukraine is not viewed in Russia as casus belli, as the reason to start a war with Russia. And hence, these arguments, I think, really, really make no no sense. talking about this sort of escalatory dance that the U.S. and Russia have been playing throughout the course of the war in Ukraine. At first, it was considered a provocation or a red line if we provided javelin missiles to Ukraine. Russia said that was a red line. We provided it, and that continued to escalate on up all the way to the point where we are now providing HIMAR missile systems, radar, Patriot systems, and even now we're training F-16 or Ukrainian pilots to operate the F-16. Red line after red line have been crossed, according to Putin, yet there's been no reaction. He keeps rattling the nuclear saber. However, do you see that there's ever a point where Russia might actually suffer catastrophic losses great enough to trigger them to activate their nuclear forces and, God forbid, even use a a nuclear device? Well, we can, I mean, we can paint any scenario, right? Uh, Even the scenario under which Putin sees something as an existential threat. But I have to say that when it comes to nuclear weapons, even though he has been mentioning that as the possibility, 
but he, he never really said that I'm going to use nuclear weapons if you provide javelins or you provide this or that. Why? Because the war is happening on the Ukrainian territory. So in that sense, his argument is that we will use nuclear weapons only when there is an existential threat to Russia, when Russia will be on the verge of extinction. That's when we are going to use the, the nuclear weapons. That's the criteria that he has been using up, up until now. And from this sense, from this standpoint, what I've seen is that he was actually quite reasonable in his uh, talk about nuclear weapons. And it does, need, does not seem to me like he is demonstrating the capacity to use either strategic or tactical nuclear weapons at any point where he feels that the Russian army is losing. Because Russian army has been losing many times over the last two, year, uh, two years. Has been withdrawing troops, leaving territory, the Ukrainians were successfully advancing. And of course, there was no hint that the Russians are going to use uh, nuclear weapons. So when you're saying under what conditions, under conditions when there are troops uh, marching towards Moscow and are closing in on the Kremlin, maybe, right? If that's, uh, if that's the scenario you want me to suggest, maybe. But, you know, what are the likelihood of that? What is the likelihood of that? And who is wanting to do that, right? Ukrainians were very clear that we don't want to go into Russia. We only want to liberate our territories. And yes, we may strike uh, certain Russian targets here and there on the Russian territory, but it is, does not mean that we want to occupy the Russian land and take some of the Russian territories from them, because these, even these strikes are a form of defenses against the Russian attack. So from this standpoint, I do not see this uh, scenario, I don't see it as a realistic scenario. question to that, or let's say Putin's forces suffer a catastrophic loss in Ukraine, they start initiating a full withdrawal contrary to his orders. That is essentially is tantamount to Putin losing the war in Ukraine. And so often many experts say that if Putin loses the war in Ukraine, he loses his power, hence he loses everything in his life. Do you think he would go so far as to take even more drastic measures uh, to protect his, his regime and his uh, consolidation of power should that event happen? Well, if, if the withdrawal of troops from Russia begins chaotically because there is a dramatic drop in trust in Putin's leadership and demoralization of Russian troops, <laughs> nuclear weapons are not going to help him. The strike against the nuclear city in Ukraine is not going to revive the trust in, in uh, Putin's leadership in any way. Because if that is the catastrophic scenario you paint, there should have been a series of very major defeats and it will not be reversible. So from this standpoint, it's not going to be very useful for Putin. Well, Dr. Kadelia, thank you so much on behalf of the Slavic Connections for your time and wonderful insight. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. Where, where are we at? 30 minutes? Yeah, okay.